Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 123, Talk to Soldier Boy. This week we're discussing season 5, episode 10 of Buffy, Into the Woods, and series 8, episode 9 of Doctor Who, Flatline. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. All right, Into the Woods, and I'm really tempted to sing the title, but I won't because <laughs> I'm not yeah. very good at that. So, uh, go, go. Uh, well, no, I was just going to um, start by saying that I am uh, quite fond of the Into the Woods musical, um, and uh, so I would wonder whether that's just a coincidence, but... I, you have told me that maybe not, that uh, Whedon actually has some uh, connections to the Sondheim universe. So, sure. Um, yeah. You can tell so, me what sort of background there is there before we get started. And I'll admit, when I first watched this, uh, well, watched the series and, and this episode in particular, the Into the Woods didn't have any real connection for me there because I'm not. I've never seen the play and other, even like up until last year when the movie came out, like I wasn't, I was sort of like vaguely aware that it existed, but didn't even, you know, it wasn't something that was really on my radar. So mm-hmm. um, it wasn't till like I had seen that and like I was reading the Joss Whedon biography that came out uh, about a year or so ago and, uh, you know, uh, found out that he was a big Stephen Sondheim fan that mm-hmm. like any of this even occurred to me. So I did a little, little research. So I guess, so first of all, there are definitely like into the woods is not this, the name of this episode is not like the first time that sort of phrase is used by Whedon. Um, there's, there's been a number of, uh, things written, you know, academically or whatever, uh, about his love of Sondheim and specifically referring to that, um, to that, uh, musical in other works. Uh, one of those is an episode we'll be coming to later in about a season or so, um, which is, you know, the, the musical episode, uh, that, of Buffy that is somewhat famous. And so, um, there's a number of connections that people draw between the Into the Woods musical and that episode. There's also a number of people have also actually um, tied Cabin in the Woods. I don't know Mm. how, you know, again, not like I'm not, I don't even, I didn't see the Into the Woods movie even. So like, I'm still not even, I know sort of vaguely what it's about, that it's about, it's sort of like a, twist on like fairy tale characters and stuff and Mm -hmm. i feel like just from a just even like knowing that little bit about it it's like okay i can understand why joss whedon might like that sort of thing and might you know um have you know sort of be drawn to those uh that type of storyline but you know i again i don't know enough about it to sort of draw conclusions but but again just that there are people who have sort of even in fact there was um a special episode of a special episode (laughs) A very special episode, not a special episode. A very special, a special issue, I should say, of um, 
of of the slayage journal where um you know it was all about uh it, it was all about cabin in the woods and sort of the introductory article or essay in in that is once more into the woods so mm. you know there's sort of another like sort of take there even though um i mean it does reference uh steven sondheim and so the 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 musical episode that that uh you know of buffy is called once more with feeling so once more into the woods they kind of put the two together and so there's like a link there but again that's about the musical episode of buffy not this episode that we're talking about Mm -hmm. so it's another thing where it's like okay what's going on here so anyway Mm -hmm. um all of that said i found like i found a few sort of internet comments about you know, the two saying, oh, yes, this probably is a sort of link, uh, you know, to the, uh, you know, to Sondheim that it's probably a reference. Um, I don't know for sure if mm-hmm. that is uh, because there are other reasons. So and just to sort of flesh that out, like I, I sort of mentioned that Whedon is a fan of Sondheim, like when I say fan, like big fan, like fanboy, like yeah. he is a fanboy of Sondheim, <laughs> yeah. and and like he, like he, when other kids were listening to like rock and roll growing up, he was listening to Stephen Sondheim records, of course he was, know, and that yeah. sort of thing, and yeah. or tapes or whatever, and um, you know, and Whedon comes from sort of a uh, a writing, you know, mm-hmm. a, a TV writing uh, family, so like you know his father and grandfather would be like listening or what, you know, they would see shows and stuff. And, and so it was sort of a family affair that they really liked Sondheim. So um, in 2005, uh, there was actually a panel um, at the New York symphony uh, space that was all about Stephen. It was for like Sondheim's 75th birthday or something. And Joss Whedon was, um, on that panel and like discuss, you know, his love there. And so like, there's just been a lot of like references and actually Whedon, um, back when he was still on Twitter, uh, was tweeting about visiting the set of into the woods and stuff and sort of his fanboyish okay. moments there and that kind of thing. So, you know, again, there's definitely a connection and we can link to a couple of things. There's, there's a like a half hour recording of, um, that panel that I just mentioned, um, that's on, available yeah. on YouTube and there's like, uh, you know, some articles and stuff that we can sort of link to, to talk about that talks about his love for Sondheim there. But again, I don't know how much it really pertains to this episode because I don't know the story well enough. And I haven't, I just haven't seen a lot of that connection being made elsewhere. Um, I will say, so just sort of flesh out the title discussion. I certainly want to hear your thoughts on it too, but um, there are two pieces that I find, um, you know, within the episode itself, which is why this title was called what it was. Um, but I, I would love to hear your thoughts on sort of the title and whether or not you think there's a connection there. Um, yeah. Uh, first of all, oh, the other thing that I'll mention is that this is not like a Whedon written episode. So mm-hmm. there's also that fact too. That's not mm-hmm. to say that it necessarily means it's not a reference to Sondheim. Like mm-hmm. he still could have said, hey, let's use this title or someone else could have liked Sondheim and said, hey, let's use this title. Um, this, was, this was actually Marty Knoxon wrote and directed this episode, and it's her directorial debut, I believe, uh, oh, within okay. Buffy. 
So uh, we've gotten episodes written by her before, but I believe this is the first one that she directs as well. Yeah. So, um, uh, so yeah, my, my thoughts on the title is there's actually two references. So um, in the beginning, when sort of early on in the episode, when Buffy's talking to her mother, um, or I, actually it might not, it might be when she's talking to Riley, actually, I think. Uh, she mentions that Joyce is out of the woods. Um, I that I caught that one. So, I'm curious what the other one is. That one I I did pick up one. So yeah. that's you know that's curious because it's you know the opposite way where out of the version of and, it yeah and and you know makes sense like it's a phrase that people would just sort of use. The second reference is is a little more oblique, um, and this is a reference to um, the Commandos. The um, when we first see Graham and um, Ellis, I think the guy's name is, uh, you know, talking and Graham sort of like advocating for bringing Riley into the team. They talk about where they're going. And of course, where they're going is to Belize, to the jungle, to the rainforest. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, at the end of the episode, okay. yeah. Riley is literally going into, into the, the woods, woods of yeah. Central America to go right. fight bad guys, right. vampires and that sort of thing. Um, right. So in that respect, those are the sort of two links that I think, you know, of why this episode is called what it is. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if there are any other thoughts than there may be as we sort of talk through it. But um, yeah, from a, I, I know you've seen you've seen the movie, right? And did were you familiar with the play? I am familiar. Yeah, they did the play. I think I first saw it in college. My theater, my college. Uh, theater did it while I was there so I first saw it that way um and then I've seen the movie and uh there's also a recording of the original um Broadway production like a like a taped just like point a camera at the stage kind of mm. tape of the I forget what year, 1987 or whatever, um, with Bernadette Peters and, you know, the original yep. cast. So yep. that's easily accessible. Um, so I've seen that as well. So it's a, for people who haven't seen it, it's very easy to get a hold of um, in different versions. But um, so a couple things. I can see why it would, maybe there, there might be a lack of, uh, scholarship on it because I think it doesn't have the obvious links that you would think of. So like, as you said, it's all the kind of fractured fairy tale stuff of, so you have Little Red Riding Hood and Jack of the Beanstalk and, you know, Rapunzel and Cinderella and, you know, all these characters kind of in a very postmodern way put into the same story kind of like Shrek you know it's sort of like this is this is like every fairy tale character from the Grimm yeah. you know lives in one place and they sort of live in the same neighborhood and bump into each other so, um sounds kind of like um the tv show once yeah uh, yeah once sort of like that so with much more you can tell that the universe they inhabit is more so like once upon the time for me is um, very much inhabiting the Disney universe. Yes. Yes. Um, whereas this is very emphatically the Grimm universe. Okay. So it's those versions of the story. So 
you know, the sisters, the, uh, the ugly stepsisters get their heels and their toes hacked off and, you know, their right. eyes pecked out. And it kind of does all the kind of pre, um, pre-censored, you know, gory stuff that, that those sort of, you know, original ones did when they were first written down in that particular version. So that's the sort of universe that they're inhabiting. And there's a couple, there's just a couple um, uh, original characters too. There's a sort of like nondescript baker and his wife, which aren't necessarily from any one particular story, but there's sort of could be any baker and his wife from any story that features poor bakers. So, right. um, and they're the kind of wild card because you don't quite know what their story is. So you're not quite sure where they're going to go, how they're going to interact with all these other things. So all that to say, there I didn't necessarily find a lot of overt references to like the plot or the characters. Like dialogue wasn't jumping out to me as as references. You know, it I didn't I didn't necessarily see the kind of obvious fairy tale illusions that I would have expected to see from the title. So I can kind of understand why maybe people have been reluctant to write about it because maybe the connections aren't as, you know, clear as they might be. But I don't think that that necessarily means that they're not there. And again, whether or not the title was Whedon's idea, whether this was intentional, I do think there's an interesting kind of thematic similarity in this idea of uh, the kind of subversion of the fairy tale happy ending of, you know, you expect things to, once you're over the struggle, to end sort of with the happily ever after. And then this idea that, well, sometimes life goes on and you may be out of one struggle and thrown into another one. So in the musical, and I won't give away any huge plot spoilers, but act one is sort of the traditional fairy tale plot that ends with what looks like pretty much happy resolution that we expect. Um, and then act two, everyone thinks they've lived happily ever after, and that's not the case. And, you know, they kind of sing in the first half all about into the woods, and it's this symbol of this is where we go to struggle so we can learn life's lessons. So what do we learn? And, and almost every character has like a song about what did I learn into the woods? You know, like, you know, so I've learned, you know, to listen to mother when she tells me not to stray off the path and all they kind of come out of it with this wisdom. Um, and then in the second half, it's this sort of, well, gosh, we thought we were done all that. And now circumstances conspire that we have to go back into the woods. And this time it's much scarier and a little bit more adult than we were expecting. And, you know, happily ever after is necessarily quite as easy as it seemed to be. So I kind of felt like there's some of that in this episode that like, and this is where I think the, the connection with the, the line from Joyce is interesting about she's out of the woods. So there's this idea of, you know, again, the woods are this symbol of struggle. You know, it's what you go through in order to grow up and learn and strengthen your character. And then in the end, you emerge triumphant out of the woods. And, you know, but then there's this sense of like, okay, Joyce's crisis might be over 
but we're thrown right back into a whole other crisis that Buffy didn't necessarily know was coming for her, you know? So here she is thinking that, you know, my mom has had a successful operation. Everything's great. Everything's perfect. We can all just go back to how it is and it's fine. And there's this, all this other stuff that she didn't even, you know, a whole other level of like problem that she wasn't necessarily even keyed into, you know? Um, and kind of this idea of, you know, as like part of life is that there's no real end to the story. It keeps going. And no sooner do you resolve one crisis that you have to sort of contend with another one. Um, so, you know, and then jumping kind of ahead, um, just the idea that Buffy and Riley don't necessarily get the happy ending to their story, you know, like, and there's that kind of thing of you expect the the fairy tale resolution of, you know, as Buffy's running and running and running, you kind of, you know, you expect her to get there on time and to save the day and declare her love. And like, it's almost like there's like the gender reversal of like, he's the more kind of passive one waiting and she's the like active you know, she's the one who has to go prove herself, like, so that has a nice kind of, you know, feminist angle to it, and then like, he takes off in the thing, and she is calling for him, and he doesn't even hear her. So, that kind of, you know, setting you up for a certain kind of resolution, and then like, just deliberately not giving you the, the nice, happy resolution that you were wanting or expecting. So thematically, I think there's kind of a nice overlap. Um, Again, whether that was intentional or not, I don't know. Um, But I, even if it wasn't, I think the fact that Joss is influenced by Sondheim, you know, then that's part of the like Sondheim's thing is that playing with genre expectations and that kind of bittersweet mix of happy and sad, you know, it's not, it's kind of tragic comedy of, you know, you're laughing one minute and then, you know, kind of given a, 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 you know, slight, uh, the rugs pulled out from you the next. And even the thing of, you know, characters dying into the woods that you don't expect, you know, like the good guys don't all make it. And so that's a very Whedon thing that I feel like, you know, if you're drawing like a continuum of like artists who influence each other, you know, with Whedon looking at like some of the kind of, you know, heroes that he sort of kills in unexpected and shocking ways I think you have to look back to Sondheim to see kind of like who did, you know, who was his kind of precursor in doing that, you know? Um, so I feel like there's those kind of like, you know, the spirit of the stories are sort of linked if nothing else. So um, that's my little, well, I talked way too long about that. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I think it's interesting and I think, you know, there, it's not like the first time we've talked a while about a title. And I think, um, I think you're right. Like there's a lot 
there's a lot there to it and yeah we can sort of talk specifics now but uh yeah interesting stuff. okay well i do want to spend most of the time on buffy and riley um for obvious reasons Se- and seems reasonable <laughs> and so i feel like it just makes sense to kind of do them together and to go through their uh story in this episode sort mm-hmm. of chronologically so um so we kind of get the initial we do get that initial relief of Joyce's out of the woods and even that just makes me wonder about is she really you know but because everything we've talked about this title you know um but anyway so we because we ended the last episode with them all worried of her going into surgery so we have her you know coming out of it so many hours later and you know a long agonizing wait which you know could mean good or bad things depending and it seems like in this case it was a good thing that they were able to see and get all of the tumor so the the doctor is giving a positive you know uh report at the end um and buffy like breaks his spine she hugs him so hard. hugs him right <laughs> yeah um, so, I mean, actually kind of before we get into Buffy and Riley, I guess just to kind of, there's not too much more to say about Joyce other than, you know, we do get that brief scene of, you know, Buffy is relieved, but still kind of wanting to hover a bit. Like Joyce seems to just ready mm. for this to be behind her, you know, like mm. I'm out of surgery and he gave me a good report so you don't need to be here you go and you know see your friends and do your patrolling and get back to school and do all that and you know Buffy's still sort of reluctant you know and still kind of wanting to you know that stuff can wait we need to make sure that you're still okay she still wants to sort of like you know don't hunt her mom a little bit um you know so kind of hanging out with her and getting her wigs and all that kind of thing um so yeah and and you know as far as that affects their relationship you know between Buffy and Riley you know she's telling Riley to go to go off don't whatever and it's you know it's interesting that although I don't think you know uh Joyce is quite the same as Xander at the end like she doesn't have quite the same insights that he has but there is sort of a like a you should be spending this time with Riley. Like you don't have to look after me anymore, but you do have a boyfriend who maybe would like mm-hmm. to see you because I know you've been spending a lot of time at yeah. my bedside and, and whatever. So, so there is even sort of that, like, you know, bit of advice from her mother that it's like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm good. And not just like, I'm good. So you don't have to watch over me now, but also not quite as explicitly, but also sort of a, you know, you do have other things that you can be doing right now, such as enjoying your life. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and. Yeah. And, and Buffy's thing of, I gave him the night off, which she does kind of talk about it. Joyce says like, Oh, I don't think he thinks of you as a chore. Right. And that is kind of the implication is that, you know, oh, he'll be so relieved. Like he doesn't have to spend it with he me. He can go do something with... fun, you know, which kind of implies that it's 
not fun to be with her or that it's some sort of responsibility that he has rather than, you know, something that he would enjoy doing. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's a theme throughout of how yeah. Buffy sort of talks about Riley too. And like, yeah, no, it's good to sort of note those moments because. Well, and I just had a thought too of like, to kind of get real like armchair psychologist about Buffy, you know, is that a, is, and maybe it's both. I don't know. Is that her saying that because she thinks Riley feels that way? Or is that a little bit of her projecting how she feels onto him? Like she feels like it's a duty to be with him. Mm -hmm. Like, Oh, this is a thing I have to go do occasionally. You know, like this is the chore I have to do. I have to put in, some quality boyfriend time and so she's kind of assuming that it's the same for him you know and so maybe that kind of is to his point later of you know it it you know she's not as emotionally invested as he is that it is more of a you know a job that she's sort of signed up for and maybe doesn't totally dislike but it's not necessarily a purely um pleasurable thing that like there's some sort of like it's a task I have to get done like you know schoolwork slaying boyfriend like you know it's just <laughs> yeah. another thing I have to do yeah. so um yep well so. and yeah that is a good question and we'll get that what maybe we'll talk about that more when we get to like the comment about how dependable he is later um but she so you know they do schedule sort of a night alone um get dawn out of the house and buffy and riley uh are there alone together and so it's interesting how uh how it seems like they are um so now, so they are together, and like I don't know, like we don't know what their sleeping arrangements have been this whole time. We know they've been spending a lot of time at the hospital, so mm-hmm. you know they've been sort of catching cat naps and stuff there. I guess like even at the beginning of this episode, it's like they're there, tired, just kind of in the chairs waiting, you know, um, mm-hmm. and you know, so the conversation between Buffy and Riley, like even with. Um, you know, Buffy sort of saying like, oh, you know, I feel so relaxed now, whatever. Like there, there's two particular moments. So, you know, Buffy says, oh, you know, I feel so relaxed. And Riley's like, oh, well, I was hoping to make you feel relaxed later. So there's even that like, and like we know, like she is probably talking mentally. He was maybe talking physically with like a massage mm-hmm. or something. But like, you know, just that idea of like, that does sort of undercut like his plans for the evening, even though... Mm-hmm it's not intentional, you know, for Buffy to do that in any sort of way or whatever, but she's, you know, she's just expressing how she feels, but there's, there's like those constant sort of things, uh, you know, moments for Riley where it's like everything that he either plans or thinks or whatever is sort of undercut by Mm. ways that she acts or feels or whatever, you know, there's, um, uh, you, you know, so there's there's like that, and that's a small thing, but then there's like the, the other thing of like, you know, uh, he says to her, you know, you were so strong, and he's trying to sort of like, 
build her up and make her feel good you know how strong you were and you didn't even cry and then she's like oh I cried and it's like okay when? <laughs> yeah. yeah when did you cry and why didn't yeah. you come to me like you know right, that right. there's that you know again it's sort of undercutting his like his ability to take care of her mm-hmm. um you know which again is later like when they're talking about it it's you know that's what he said it's like you you don't need me like it's not about you taking care of me it's about me taking care of you and letting me take care of you <laughs> like being even just giving me enough information so that I can be there and yeah. you know we've seen that like before of like um just even when you know her mom was in the hospital and he like comes and tries to help her and mm-hmm. you know offer himself as like a shoulder to cry on and it's like no that's okay I can't or else I'll never stop and then later now he's finding out oh you actually did cry and I wasn't there even though I sort of offered it so I don't know it just it, there's that like continual undertone and and you know again it's not like Buffy is doing anything wrong she's just expressing how she feels and how she Mm -hmm. you know is sort of reacting and but at the same time you know for Riley it's like well there's an exclusionary factor going on here and and it does sort of make me wonder like you know like you were saying like how much of it is Buffy sort of thinking of him as a chore because Mm -hmm. she does go to that point and and I'm sort of combining their two conversations from like when they're at Buffy's house to later when she sort of confronts him right. um, after yeah, yeah. finding out, you know, and yeah. out. but it's hard to like disassociate. Yeah. The two. It's hard not to. Um, yeah. So like, you know, later when, when they're talking, you know, she does say like, Oh, it's when they're in the magic shop. That's right. And they're, you know, and she's like, you know, it wasn't, you know, I'm sorry I didn't have time to take care of you. And so again, there's that moment of like, like you said, like she's thinking of him as a chore. And that's when he turns around and is like, well, no, it's about me taking care of you and about mm-hmm. you letting me take care of you. And so, so it does feel a bit like, like, again, like you were saying, like that it's that mentality she has of, she just has to be the one to take care of everything. And and she pretty much admits that. Like, mm-hmm. I can't not be that way. Because if I do, then everything falls apart. And whatever. Now, whether that's true or not is, mm-hmm. you know, debatable. But certainly she feels that way. Whether, right. you know, whatever the sort of objective reality might be, that's how she feels. And that's how, you know, that explains her sort of... Uh, yeah. You know, uh reactions to or or lack of conversation about this type of stuff with Riley. Um, right. Well, she kind of frames it as like this is a a slayer related duty to not, you know, become too you know, again, whether that Yeah. is anybody put that on her or whether she is sort of making that up, you know, on her own. That's kind of according to her, part of what being a slayer is, is being on top of everything, always being, um, of taking care of other people, you know, and, but just being in control of herself and her emotions and everything. And you can see it's hard to blame her for that because you can kind of see how 
you know, it like there could be that thing of the second I let my guard down, that's when people get killed, you know, like she's been sort of conditioned to, you know, feel that way of, you know, always be vigilant and on top and in control and knowing exactly what's going on, you know, and, you know, that, you know, may or may not be in the official job description of the Slayer, but that's sort of what her experience has taught her, I think, is this sort of hyper responsibility. Um, Yeah. Well, and it goes back to, you know, the idea that she's the first one who really has, she's the first Slayer who has a family and friends, you know, to rely on in, insofar as, you know, even from like Kendra and uh, Faith and stuff, we find out that like a lot of Slayers are sort of trained even before they are Slayers to sort of rely on themselves and not have family attachments. And, Mm -hmm. you know, even if they might technically have family that are still alive somewhere, they're not in contact with them or don't, you know, see them very often or whatever. So, um, well, and the flip side of that too, then is, I mean, like that for Buffy, that gives her, yes, people to rely on, but also people who depend on her, Right. you know, she can't just look out for, you know, at least, you know, the other slayers, you know, do your job and don't get killed, you know, whereas Buffy actually has other lives, you know, who sort of depend on her, you know, so that even makes, in a way that makes her more, have to be, you know, more sort of responsible than she would be otherwise. And I feel like, I feel like this is a really good example of, you know, a relationship kind of imploding, to use Anders words, not necessarily i mean i'm not saying nobody does anything wrong i mean you could you could argue you could argue you know that it's because uh, you know of these you know buffy's being sort of very self-focused and insensitive to to riley and i think that would be fair you could argue about all the weird stuff riley gets up to having a big part to do with it and that would be fair so i'm not saying like nobody makes mistakes in this relationship, but like, it seems like for the most part, this is an issue of, it's not necessarily that one person is wrong. It's that they are not in the right place to be able to help each other. You know, like each one of them is kind of needing things that the other one isn't in the right place to give, you know, like, it it kind of seems like if like what Buffy needs right now is kind of a boyfriend who would just sort of maybe back off a little bit more, you know, and wouldn't necessarily expect to be the guy who gets to take care of her and everything, who kind of gives her that space, you know, um, and Riley needs the opposite. He needs someone who's going to commit to him to the extent that he's committing you know, and like, it's not that either of them are necessarily wrong for wanting those things. It's just like, they're completely missing each other's points, you know, um, or by the time they realize it, it's kind of too late. So 
Well, and so let's talk about what Riley says he needs. So, well, okay. So plot wise, there's, you know, Riley goes to the vampire house. That's sort of like a, you know, crack house kind of place. And And now that we see it more, I do see what you mean about the kind of cracked in thing. I didn't necessarily get that when it was just the one-on-one, but like definitely the house like crawling with sort of these very, you know, CD vampires and addicted humans. Um, I do get that, you know, yeah, and that, that metaphor a lot more. And it, I mean, they made it more and more explicit, certainly as, yeah. as it's sort of gone on. Um, which I think, like, I mean, I think it's good. It's, it's not like the, you know, Oh, you try it one time and you're addicted thing. It's, I think from a sort of a implicating Riley standpoint, uh, it makes it even worse because you see it more as a decision. Like it's a decisive, mm-hmm. it's not like, Oh, I got bit accidentally by a vampire and now I crave that feeling. You right. know, it's okay. Right. It's not the like, oops, I got addicted to painkillers while I was in the hospital kind right. of thing. It's like, right. no, he like, you know, ex- he's experimenting. He sought it out. And he's, and, yeah. 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 Um, and now yeah, we and, know and, it's and an it's, addiction because he's waking up in the middle of the night and sneaking out of his girlfriend's house to go right. which, know, partake. Which, it, it struck me that she doesn't even really notice, you know, like, which is in itself kind of telling that, like, there's no, up until Spike actually shows her what's going on, there's no sense from Buffy of, right. like, where did he go in the middle of the night? We're not worried yeah. about this at all. So, yeah. which again, like, only further shows how sort of out of touch she is. Of you know, that's you interesting. Know, I don't um, know that I've ever really sort of thought about it that way before. But you're right. Like, she wakes up, spikes in her room, and Riley's not, and she right. doesn't even realize that he's not there. Well, and it happens twice because they're together the first night, and he leaves. And then it's the next night when right. she wakes up and Spike's there, you right. know, and we know Riley was over because she's naked under the sheets. So it's like this is happening repeatedly and she's just either not that worried or totally not even noticing, you know, which makes her look, you know, not necessarily in the most flattering light, you know, of kind of hey, you'd think she would at least be a little bit concerned or curious about this. Right. Um, right. But I think it kind of shows that she is a bit out of touch with what's going on with him. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so Spike comes and <laughs> yeah, and I mean, does his little thing too, you know. Right, of course, why, why does Spike know and follow Riley? Well, it's because he's still stalking her basically yeah you know outside the tree and yeah uh by the tree i mean and so uh yeah so there's this there's this uh conversation <laughs> that that buffy and riley ha- well so okay there's there's two pieces right there's to finish talking about spike riley first goes to his crypt yeah. Stakes them with a uh, plastic stake, as it turns out. Right. So um, I guess it actually has to be wood. Is that what we're taking that to mean? 
It can't just yeah. be oh, yeah. it it gets impaled be by something. Stake. I okay. mean, that's a right, that's a pretty uh basic piece of vampire mythology. But yeah, like sure. apparently he found someone who produces plastic, you know, stakes that look like I mean, you know, again, like maybe this is left over from his initiative days. Initiative where, like, days, right. Maybe they were experimenting with different materials or coming up with different ways of torturing, you know, vampires and stuff. So um, maybe Giles stocks fake steaks at the magic shop or something. Could be something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So there, you know, so he goes over, but. You know, obviously, like the interesting thing isn't that he goes and beats up Spike because you know they've been there, done that. Um, sure. But that when he's over there, Spike actually starts talking to him, and they mm-hmm. sort of have some camaraderie <laughs> going. Right. On. They kind of even share a beer and, like, yeah, you know, commiserate a little bit. Um. You know, and. And this isn't even the first time that Spike has sort of said the things that he says to Riley. Um, like before when he, you know, when he goes, uh, I forget which episode it is, but, you know, he goes over to Buffy's house and like oh, Riley yeah, finds yeah. him there and like, you know, he throws him out into the sunlight with, you know, without the blanket and stuff. So, you know, at that point, Spike was like, oh, you know, Buffy needs a little monster in her man kind of thing. And mm-hmm. You know, he's saying that same sort of thing here, that, like, Riley's just too much of a goody-goody. He's Mm -hmm. not evil enough for Buffy. He doesn't have that little bit of demon in him that he needs. Now, again, this is coming from Spike, who clearly has developed feelings for Buffy. So, you know, how objective is all this? You know, Mm -hmm. who knows? But it seems to be at least niggling Riley, you know, still again, that, you know, maybe he's not dark enough for her that, you know, we, we get the reference later to Angel and Dracula and, you know, Mm -hmm. him sort of saying, well, I wondered what they have that I don't. And, you know, that sort of thing. So Spike gets to him a bit and, uh, you know, Spike's little sort of monologue about, whether he, he sometimes he wonders whether he or Riley has the better deal, but mm-hmm. then like you know you kind of are, are expecting it to sort of be left you know for sort of the viewer to think upon it, and then Spike's like, no, no, you got the better deal. Like yeah. clearly you have the better deal, but you can't handle it. Like you're you're the one who's kind of being an idiot here. I don't even have the option of being her right. boyfriend and you are her right. boyfriend and now you're and bitching you're because she it. doesn't yeah. love you right. in precisely sort of, the way that you want her to. It's the, it's the answer to what Xander says to Buffy of like, you have a good thing and you're too stupid to appreciate it, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. And it kind of got me like, it kind of made me think too, and this isn't necessarily one is better than the other, but like, that's kind of the difference between, Spike and Riley maybe in the end of like much as Riley talks about like this kind of unbridled passion and everything at the end of the day he's more of a realist like he wants he knows Buffy's not reciprocating what he's giving and his decision is to leave you know there's like a practical kind of thing of well if it's not working out then 
you know, I'm going to do the right thing and move on. Whereas like Spike's conclusion about like, you know, the agony of, you know, being with her, even if she doesn't love me is so much better than anything else. Even if like, it's awful, it's still better than not being with her. And that's like the romantic idea, you know, like, mm -hmm. which I think connects nicely with Spike's like, bad romance poetry and everything like you know not just romance and like you know the love sense but like capital r romantic right. of like you know it, it's it, like if you think of like heathcliff like that's like a poisonous kind of like love but it's this like it's the sort of gothic love that like will end up killing you both but you're gonna like it's so much better than not having it um, so I feel like that kind of is right for Spike that like, he'll totally endure the misery of, you know, pining for Buffy under any circumstances, whereas Riley, he's not going to do that. Like, you know, if he wants an actual relationship, and if it's not working, then he will break it off and, you know, try to give them both the opportunity to move on mm. so you know i think it's nice that they actually end up spike confirming that that's how he feels because i think it shows that that makes him a little bit different than riley i don't think riley necessarily agrees with him there um but yeah okay so so then Riley goes to the magic shop and yeah. finds Buffy there and they have sort of their, their out, you know, they have it out. Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, there's a lot that is said between them. So I don't know that we need to go through the entire conversation, yeah. but from, you know, at least from Riley's perspective again. Uh, and I think, I mean, I think we've already sort of, talked a lot about Buffy's perspective, but I mean, we can certainly talk more about her, what she says too, but you know, from what Riley explains how he's feeling, it's, you know, he admits that, you know, it sort of started off as like a small thing. And so, you know, it becomes one of those things of like, okay. Uh, like he mentions like letting Dracula bite her and well, I did not let like Dracula bite me, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, again, we sort of, even wondered at the time, like in that episode, like how much under his thrall was she? Mm -hmm. At least here, she seems to be saying completely <laughs> like, yeah. you know, like it wasn't her letting him bite her, you know, as some sort of, you know, like whatever, like that he's, that he actually had, uh, had her under his control somehow, mm -hmm. but you know, whatever, like whatever that is, at least, you know, from Buffy's perspective at the time, it seemed that way. Like she just sort of stood around, I guess, or whatever and, and let him bite her. And so you can see how like this one thing sort of gets in his brain and sort of nibbles away at, mm -hmm. you know, his thoughts and, and sort of grows into something more than it's not. But it's funny because also on some level, like, even if that is where it started and like, I don't know why, like we don't have any reason to not believe him when he says that, mm -hmm. 
the way it sort of pans out is it has nothing to do with like Dracula and stuff. So it's interesting because that's actually Spike's argument. So mm. like at this point, he's sort of saying the same thing that Spike's been saying to him of, you know, again, you know, she needs a little monster in her man like that, that he says it started that it actually did start it out there. So, which is interesting because this is, you know, if that's true, this is Spike being right about, mm-hmm. you know, reading that into it. But it becomes more than that, you know, I think, because then it also, you know, he talks about the things that, you know, the vampires who he, he let bite him. Also, I wonder how much there is, I didn't really quite think of it this way, but but if that's the way that he saw, or at least initially saw that interaction of Dracula you know, a Buffy letting Dracula bite, then, like, maybe this is, like, okay, that's why I'm letting vampires bite me. Like, there's that sort of reciprocation mm-hmm. as well to it. Um, yes, like, it's kind of, like, there's a little bit of the curiosity, but a little bit of a revenge thing of, like, you know, you, you, you did this, so, yeah, um, you know, I have, like, you can't tell me I can't because I mean, you did it. You it's know? almost like that thing of, like, I mean, because there, there's a deep, you know, there's there's a big sort of undertone of, like, the cheating factor, right? And, and Buffy even yeah. said, you know, tell me about your whores. Like, right. you know, like, there's, there's, like, the sexual undertones there. And, you know, it's almost like that thing of, like, uh, say, you know, someone who is caught cheating on their partner, spouse or whatever, um, you know, they might say, well, you know, you went out with so-and-so after work one day and I didn't like that. And so like that was cheating on me. And so like it, you know, maybe I went too far, but now, you know, it was all because you you did it it. first. So it's just like, it's like this, this, you know, uh, desire to sort of blame someone else for your own actions, even though like the thing you're, you, even if the thing like actually happened was much less, of a wrong or of a, you know, uh, yeah. offense or whatever, than the thing that you end up doing to quote, get back at them or whatever. So. Well, and it's the kind of little justification for something that you probably wanted to do anyway. Like he might've been already curious right. about what's right. it like to get bitten. So the fact that Buffy has been and let herself be bitten opens In that door mind, yeah. to, yeah, yeah. 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 Actually, infidelity another theme and into the woods so um, for what that's Um, worth so so like you get that like if that is the genesis of it like you you can sort of understand how like he might use that as like a justification or an excuse Mm -hmm. you know regardless of the truth of it because you know he even admits here on some level i know that you didn't like let him but that's where it started. Like, if we're just being honest here, that's where it started for him. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it developed, I think, into, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, him saying that there is on some level something that they needed from me, which you never do. You never did. You don't need anything from me. And that's part of the problem is that Mm -hmm. like, okay, maybe Dracula bit you and you didn't let him but you also like 
didn't need him to either. Whereas mm-hmm. I feel like I need to because for some reason I'm not getting what I need from you. Now, right. you know, I think Buffy's totally justified in her response of saying, like, whose fault is that? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, just because just because you need something more than I'm giving you, that doesn't that doesn't make it okay for you to go do the things that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Like, especially, you know, when we get into the fact that he's sneaking around and lying and, you know, not communicating the things that he needs. And and granted, like, she's not doing the best job of communication either, but he's, at least yeah. in her defense in that case, it's, I, there's some legitimate, like, not seeing what's going on. Right. Whether you can blame her for that, as Xander sort of does later, like mm-hmm. that's that's different than seeing what's going on and choosing not to talk about it and going mm-hmm. off and doing something else altogether. So like, right. like Riley's clearly in the wronger position in that instance. Sure. Yeah, if you want to sort of balance right. Buffy, it out somehow, Buffy's but, mainly oblivious. That's kind of right. her big like sin in this is is just not being aware of things that should be obvious, but, um, but yeah, he, Riley's definitely making destructive choices. Right. He's, Um, he's doing, he's doing the proactive thing of, of these choices. And like you said, they're, they're sort of designed to be self-destructive in that case. And, and who, like, I mean, again, sort of with the metaphor of drug use, it's like, who knows, like at what point does he quote overdose and, Right. You know, the vampire sucks too much or whatever. Like, right. we get the conversation. I like the, well, with the kind of metaphor aspect, I like, like, Giles' point about, like, well, they get, like, a vampire who just pretends to play by the rules. And then, does, like, there's that whole thing of, like, you get, like, somebody who sells you something that is labeled right. one thing, but it's really something yeah. else. Like, how do you even know? Kind of poisonous, you know how do you even material. know that what you're signing up for? So, you know, right. there's that kind of danger aspect to it yeah um Um, well and so just just to bring up giles a little bit too because like there's an interesting response too when when buffy sort of comes in and you know is kind of outraged that like giles knows this sort of thing goes on and it's like you know first of all i didn't even realize this was happening in sunnydale like i have you know (laughs) i like the reference to his ripper days like yeah. How 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 much do you know about vampire flop houses, mm-hmm. you know, crack den type places, Giles? Um, and why do you know about yes. them? Uh, you know, I but think Giles like, did a little experimenting like in his that, youth as well. Yeah. Beyond that, um, you know, like he says, well, I didn't know it was happening here, whatever. But, you know, Buffy's just angry and sort of you know, obviously there's the emotional aspect of it for her, but the you know the idea that this sort of thing even exists sort of pisses her off but i i find giles response somewhat interesting too because he doesn't call it like a victimless crime mm-hmm. and <laughs> uh sorry i'm not laughing at the concept of victimless crimes <laughs> i'm laughing because your cat was just walking in front of the my cat just but, flashed the uh the uh <laughs> the video camera. So, Sorry. No, it's all good. Just kind of threw me off for a moment. Um, yeah, Giles, like the way he sort of puts it, not like that it's totally victimless, you know, because 
he does say that people can die and whatever, but he calls them willing victims. That mm. that there's an instance here between you know that that there's a difference between simply you know being someone who like happens to be walking at night and gets you know attacked mm-hmm. and someone who's sort of toying with the dark side you know sure. um, playing with fire yeah yeah and i i know there's there so of course this is 2000 uh 15 years hence we have become very much um concerned about the idea of victim blaming mm-hmm. um and not you know i mean that that is fine like but there's also a different sort of era I kind mm-hmm. of feel like if, if this, it's a, it feels a little politically incorrect it, now. It, if so, this like, episode if, were rewritten today, it, yeah, that that discussion might go differently. Yeah, but right, yeah, but I also, yeah, especially because the metaphor is such a clear one. You know, I think that the comment, which you know, I think Giles is a fairly open-minded and liberal sort of person, but you know, there is that kind of slight uh snootiness to him that might that might kind of go with it like that comment is a little bit you know elitist and you know i don't know i'm not quite sure how i feel about that in terms of his character you know yeah but at the same time though it it is interesting because i think i think there's also i mean one there's the ripper aspect so again it's like how much is that comment like maybe you shouldn't be judging because maybe you know someone who's He's actually you know there, yeah. partaken before um or whatever like again like we don't get enough to actually know what giles's mm-hmm. participation may have been so i don't yeah. want to assume that's the case either but also just the idea that that things are more ambiguous like and i think this goes along with you know what really is a demon like you know as we've sort of talked on and off about kind of the whole series so far as okay, yes, vampires are bad. People who die, like, we don't like that. Um, Mm -hmm. But (laughs) maybe it's a little grayer than, you know, black and white. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and and of course, Buffy doesn't buy it in the moment. You know, uh, what's her line? You know, my my job description is pretty clear. You know, vampire slayer. Like, if there's anything she should be doing, it's taking care of this sort of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's right. She's not wrong either. Right. But maybe if you were to like triage the vampire situation or even like the evil situation in Sunnydale, Giles points out that like, yeah, maybe maybe there are better ways to spend your time. Like maybe that's something we can worry about after like, right. you know, blonde women who can kick your ass are taken care of. Right. And so... Right. So right or like people who might actually destroy the world. Yeah. You know. You know versus um, sort of like the sudden you know it's like you know uh if I could again sort of extend the metaphor it's sort of like the drug war comparison of like is it really worth like busting the farmer who's growing some weed in his fields versus like going after sort of the hardcore heroin dealers who are like you yeah. know fully armed with, you know, an arsenal of weapons and, you know, having gang wars in the middle of the street kind of thing. It's like, which one is really more worth going after if you're, you know, if you're going to be 
spending your time dealing with one or the other. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and in this case, yes, again, like from Giles's perspective, maybe we don't have to go after them right now. <laughs> like, yeah. And I think that's reasonable. Like I, I do think you're right in 2015, that line about their willing victims who don't deserve your help yeah. seems quite dated, you know, um, you know, kind of, you know, outdated sort of sentiment, at least for like one of the good guys to be saying, you expect a villain to say that now, but like, I don't think that means that his idea is wrong about, you know, this isn't necessarily the first priority on, you know, Buffy's hit list, um, mm-hmm. you know, so. And, and of course, Giles and team doesn't know about Riley's involvement at that point either. So right. like, they're not picking up on yeah, the, the emotional factor that. Right. Buffy oh, the subtext had. here. Yeah. 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 Um, right, which is why she's so gung ho about it. You know, mainly like oh, I don't yeah. think she would, she would, you know, probably agree with Giles under different circumstances. You know, it's, but she has this ulterior motive. Um, yeah, no, clearly, clearly, there's a piece missing for them. But I mean, obviously, it's a big motivator for her. Um, yeah. So we're getting we're, we're at an hour. I didn't. I just looked up and realized we were there. Um, I do want to make sure we finish talking through Buffy and Riley um, and and especially about Xander's sort of part of the conversation. Yeah. Uh, so any, any other thoughts like about Buffy and Riley together and sort of what they say to each other? Um, I know we kind of got into Giles stuff, but. Right. Well, um, I mean, I think we kind of covered what they say to each other. I think the Xander piece is the kind of, other big thing um because then i like how they've set up for most of the season that xander has been aware of mm-hmm. the kind of tension between them um which is kind of nice like i think i, I think it's great that um there are you know a lot of female characters and that it's like a largely female driven show. Um, but it's also kind of like, there's something true about the fact that when you kind of have Xander and Riley and the Scooby gang, they're maybe more aware of each other's issues and insecurities than some of the others mm. might be like that. They connect like on a kind of friendship level. So mm. you kind of get Xander picking up on stuff that even Buffy doesn't pick up on. Um, and and and, and 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 I like that Xander like doesn't necessarily absolve either one because we've seen him confront Riley in the past, like getting angry when Riley doesn't show up for things that he said he would show up for. Right. So it's not I don't think that it's just Xander taking the guy's side over the girls, you know, like I think he sees that the two of them aren't working communicating and that neither of them is really pulling their weight in the relationship in in slightly different ways Mm -hmm. um i i do want to say going way back to your initial conversation about um uh you know the triptych the soul triptych Mm -hmm. like 
if there was any confusion about whether or not Xander is the heart, like this episode <laughs> should clear it up. You know what I mean? Right, like, right, right. Yeah. Like, and, and I think too, just like what you were saying from a, you know, um, from a gender perspective too, it's like, okay, you know, this is Xander with, you know, the emotional quotient, you know, right, aspect right. of the show. Like this is, this is him being the one to say, you know, uh, why wouldn't you go running after him if you're in love with him? Like, mm-hmm. you, you know, but what am I supposed to do? Beg him to stay? Why wouldn't you? Like, right. this is, this is. Right. Like, what do you have, pride or something? Like, yeah. what's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, um, so, yeah. Uh, you know, and probably my favorite line, you know, of the episode is uh, Buffy's thing about, you know, he's supposed to be dependable and Xander goes, what is he, State Farm? You know, like, right. this idea of, like, you know, that that he has that way of using the humor to sort of cut to the core of the issue. Like, yeah. what what does dependable mean, really? You know, it doesn't mean he's there for me when I need him sort of to support me. It means he's there when I want him to be. And, you know... Right. Um, He's convenient, which is yeah. what Xander says. Right. Um, and and I and I, and two, you know, again, kind of to your point, like you were saying about, he's the one that's sort of picking up on things. That I mean, he even says like, "I'm surprised you didn't see what was going on because you're yeah. there." And and he starts, you know, sort of telling her what things happen, and she, well, I know the story, and he goes, "But you missed the point." And that's mm-hmm. the thing. It's like, you know, being sort of being literature people ourselves, like, you know, how many times have maybe you read a story and each time you see something new in it? And it's like, you know, here's Xander giving his exegesis of the mm-hmm. Buffy story so the story far. story so yeah. far, yeah. Um, and, and I like that because he does, like you said, I don't know that, that he's coming down on Riley's side because I don't, I don't think he's like, I think he's, you know, obviously we know Xander at one point had romantic feelings for Buffy and she turned him Mm -hmm. down and, you know, all of that. But, you know, now he's in his own good place. Like he has a steady job. He has a steady girlfriend. He's, you know, like this is Xander just being a friend and saying like, I'm not here to tell you that like you're wrong. I'm here to tell you that you're making a mistake, <laughs> you know, that, that I know those seem kind of like contradictory statements, but like right. that, that your, that your mistake is in thinking that you don't have any power to change what's going mm-hmm. on here because that's right. ridiculous. You're, you're, you're being a bit pigheaded. And even though he says like, you know, nice things about Riley, like, you know, he's, he's the one that comes around once in a lifetime, you know, he's never held back. He's risked everything. Like, even though he's saying those nice things, the things that he's saying aren't about Riley. It's about, they're about Buffy being happy. And it's like, Mm -hmm. you, you know, as your friend, I'm telling you that this is the guy you want to be with. So Mm -hmm. why are you not just going and being with him? You know, if, if that's really what you want, why are you sort of letting this stupidity flourish and, you know, letting him go off. Um, right. And giving her the freedom, you know, 
not in the kind of because again it, it it flirts with you know that kind of thing of like the nice guy syndrome to put that in quotes of like because I'm nice and dependable therefore you should be with me you know um and but it doesn't go there because he gives her the 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 window to say if you don't feel those things then by all means let him go it's not a matter of he's earned your you know like your loyalty or you know the relationship or anything but like you said if you feel those things and you're letting him go then you're making a mistake and you know it's Xander pointing that truth out to her right um not well, telling her not telling yeah. her what to do but telling her like helping her see what it is that's going on so that she can make a decision right, right. and that's a, that's kind of what i was trying to get at like even though he's talking about Riley, he's not talking to her for Riley's sake. Like he's not, right. he he's not there to say like, you owe it to Riley. Like right. you said, exactly. because he's dependable. It's, it's, it's because I'm your friend and I think this is what you want. Or, or if this is what you want, then you, you need to do you something to do about some, it. Like, because, like right like, now. This, yeah. is, this is how, this is the way I see things. And you're right. Like he right. does, he does present it in a way that it's that it's her choice. And of course, then she's runs off, and that's all good. Um, well, it's not all good because well, she gets good. there late. But I mean, like <laughs> at least in that moment, it's he's like, "Go! Like, why are you still talking yeah. to me? Like, right? You know, yeah." Um, right. So yeah, so she does go, she and goes. she's too late. And he's off. Yeah. I to Central America. Yeah, to back into the woods. And yeah, I don't know. Um I won't give when away when or whether to expect him again at any point. I I won't do, give I away one know. way or the other if we yeah. ever see Riley again. Um yeah. obviously I mean there'll be references to him because oh, you know, yeah. that makes sense, but I would imagine I won't yeah. I won't say if if we see him again, and if so, I won't say when that might occur. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, and then we should also, since we're sort of on Xander still a little bit, um, we should talk about the ending there with him and Anya. Right, yeah. Yeah, so you kind of, you know, Buffy kind of turns it around on on him. Is, is she, is Anya any more of a can more than a convenience because that would kind of be a shock like you know there is a potentially you know i mean part of it is just she's defensive and you know um awkward and not you know really up to speed on human yeah yeah activities. yeah <laughs> right so i mean you could kind of buffy's kind of potentially pointing out some hypocrisy there of oh you're you know accusing me of these things that you know might also be true of Xander and that may or may not be the case. Um, you know, I don't think Xander and Anya are imploding to the extent that, you know, they seem much more in sync with each other than Buffy and Riley are at this point. Um, but you know, there's a lot of back and forth in this episode of Anya, um, 
like being the kind of socially awkward one and Xander kind of correcting and putting her in her place. And it is always very like, Anya, don't say this. Anya, stop this. Anya, you know, be nicer, all this stuff. And it's sort of like, it's kind of nice to have him come in and like, wait a minute, let me clarify something because it's starting to get a little bit one note of Xander always corrects Anya. And, you know, like, like that's their relationship is she screws yeah. up and he corrects her. Um, <laughs> I just like that. But, Anya. She's newly human and strangely literal. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody talks like that. <laughs> it's like, well, that's true. I don't know that that's what they were thinking, but um, right. Yeah. So, but you know, he does come in in the end, and you know, and 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 you know, there's the moments too where he kind of brushes her off and stuff, like where, you know, she kind of wants to go back to the apartment, and he's like, "No, nah, I have stuff to do," and you know, again, maybe he obviously had important stuff to do and good reason, but. It, it all comes across as slightly a little callous. And I think this is the nice wake up call for Aunt, for Xander to take his own advice and not yeah. take her for granted quite so much that like, he shouldn't just assume that she'll stick with him, that he can't actually just, you know, brush her off and expect her to always be there. Um, that occasionally he has to say nice things too. Um, so, you know, compliment her and not just talk about, like, how, you know, out of it she is. So. Um, yeah. And some so, good stuff for them. So, yeah, he declares his love. And, and yeah. even, and not just that, like, it's in the moment, but it's, you know, you make me feel like I've never felt like a man, you know, and that right. he feels... Uh, you know, the way he feels every time, you know, and I, you know, and to some extent, that's the sort of thing you would expect sort of in a love story. Like if you want to look at their part as a love story right. and happy ending, at least for this mm -hmm. episode in a way. Um, but that like, also like it's incredibly sincere, especially coming after that conversation. I think you're right. Like it, Buffy, you know, again, Buffy is not necessarily the heart, but she's lashing out, you know, with her words, like she might lash out at a vampire with her hands, you know, and mm -hmm. sort of stakes the heart of what Xander is saying, mm -hmm. <laughs> so to speak. So, you know, again, like, I think you're right that, that that's sort of a wake up call. And so there is a sense, but there's also like Buffy has the frantic running I'm scared to lose you kind of thing. I think it's interesting, you know, especially like going back to, you know, the episode where we see like the two Xanders and whatever, mm -hmm. like this is calm, collected, smooth, mm -hmm. like smooth Xander, I, yeah. I know what I want and it's you kind of thing. Like this is right, definitely. Right. And he gets the big romantic love declaration at the end. Right. Right. This is this is him being sort of secure in the way he feels and all of that. And, mm -hmm. and that we find out is in large part because of Anya, mm -hmm. it seems. So good for them. So any other final things? Like, I don't know how much we need to say about, like, the soldiers and Graham and stuff. I mean, right. Um, they come get him and he chooses to go off with them and and we sort of get the explicit 
you know, this isn't the initiative. They're not, this isn't like right. they're trying to capture things for scientists. This is basically like the military version of Buffy. They just go kill the bad things, you know. Um, and that's that. <laughs> like, seems yeah. pretty straightforward. Um, any other, anything about Dawn? I don't, like, other than that, she sort of goes off with Anya. And yeah, Zara no, there isn't too much with her. Um, you know, you kind of get more of her kind of, uh, that kind of humor about, like, how much is she naive or not, you know, like, oh, she mm. knows that, like, so she's young enough to need sitters and to not be around while they're having a date, but old enough that she knows what it is they're doing while she's not there. So in that kind of right. awkward in-between stage, um, and Anya being kind of disappointed that that means that they can't do anything while she's oh, wait there. wait a minute. <laughs> um, yeah. Or those at least right, can't right. be allowed. Um, um, yeah, other than that, I don't think I really have anything else. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move on then to the okay. Uh yeah. Flatline. So this was an interesting episode. Um, so I have to admit, the first the first thing I thought of was not um, anything related to uh, what it ended up being with the sort of dimensional thing, but I thought of um, that like early '90s movie Flatliners mm. with. Uh, uh, Julie Roberts and Kiefer Sutherland and whatever, where they like purposely, you know, bring themselves to death and then, you know, revive. I don't think I ever saw that movie. And... No. Oh, really? Okay. Well, they, and so they, the, the sort of premise is that they're, I think they're like medical students or something and they like purposefully like basically induce near death experiences and, um, they start like there's like these supernatural beings that like start coming through and stuff. So um, there's even sort of in, in the moments in this episode where like you see like the two dimensional beings and are kind of misshapen mm -hmm. and ill-formed and like walking towards them where there's some, not quite the same way as it happens in the movie, but like there's some resonance there. I'm, I'm curious if there was maybe any sort of purposeful visual stuff going I have no on there, idea but, no idea um, the 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 at least the title of the episode mm. flatline made me think of that um which of course no we've, we've talked a lot about titles this episode i don't know that i normally think that much about mm -hmm. the episodes but anyway it, it did mention that um so then when i once i actually sort of knew what the episode was about the next thing that I sort of was thinking about is that uh, old book uh, mm -hmm. Flatland, which is uh, was written in 1884, or at least published in 1884 um, by Edwin Abbott. And um, I've, I've never read the whole thing, but I've read uh, portions of it. Uh, and it's basically a story like told by, well, from the point of view of a square talking about sort of his two-dimensional mm -hmm. uh, world of flatland and talking about um, he, he's like instructing 
his like nephew mm-hmm. or something or <laughs> I, I don't remember exactly how it or maybe that there was like a movie of it too at one point or whatever and so it's you know it was one of those things where like it was rather inventive and it sort of has like uh uh social you know commentary on sort of the victorian mm-hmm. ages because they're ta- he's talking about like uh, the different hierarchy and how different shapes relate right. to other shapes and those all sort of have resonance and stuff. But it also um, has sort of, uh, it was actually fairly successful. Um, and, but then, you know, when it was like first published, but then like sort of went away uh but then was re sort of invented after Einstein had his um, work on, on general theory of relativity published and all that. And so like around like the 1920s, there was um, uh, like, there was a mention of it uh, published in, um, in an essay in, in the journal nature, like in reference to like Einstein and Newton Mm -hmm. and Euclidean theory and stuff. So like it sort of became like this revived, like, um, you know, mention or not mentioned, but like, you know, talking about different dimensions and things and, and like all of this stuff and sort of had like a second, uh, popularity. And then even, um, in like modern pop culture, it's been referenced a number of times. There was actually in the 1960s, there was like an animated film uh, created, but then in, just in the 2000s, there have been a couple. There was a uh, uh, indie sort of feature film created in 2007, and then um, there was also like a, a animated educational sort of film that had a number of uh high profile people so like martin sheen Kristen mm-hmm. bell uh all sort of were involved in that and then they had like another um uh episode uh, not an episode but like another short film uh that was sort of a sequel to that and then like there have been people who've written like uh sequels and stuff mm-hmm. um one called sphere land <laughs> and other and it's like well isn't that just like normal like 3d space but i don't know i've not <laughs> read or whatever um, and there's been like literary references all throughout the 20th and into 21st century and stuff. So it's actually a fairly, um, inter- like, you know, it has a, it has a fairly, uh, you know, long lived, uh, life here, I guess. Um, and, you know, again, like this social commentary aspect has sort of like fallen out, but it's you know, just from sort of the idea of like the different dimensions mm-hmm. and like two dimensional creatures versus, uh, you know, three dimensional space and that kind of thing. And I think even in the book it talks about like, like, you know, how they're better than like the, the line land or something <laughs> like that. Like, you know, the land just of completely of lines right. kind of thing. Everybody so, like, needs somebody to catch. So yeah. Yeah. Like, like those yeah. sort of things. Um, apparently has even been referenced on like big bang theory and Futurama and like some shows like that. So uh, just sort of surprising that like this idea, but I did catch in, in this episode that the doctor talks about like um, how the two dimensional universe has sort of been mm. theorized by people for right. a long time. So it, it made me think of that. Like, but I wondered like, Oh, is that to this. Yeah. sort of the yeah. impetus then, uh, 
you know, for that. Um, and who, I mean, I don't know that we get any clear uh, references in the um, episode. Again, another story that I don't know, like Flatland, I mean, I don't know mm-hmm. well enough, even though I've read portions of it um, before. I just um, don't know, like, the full story well enough to know if there's any, like, actual plot mm-hmm. resonance. Um, I suspect not, because it, from what I understand, um, Flatland is more along the lines of, like, those, like, late 19th, early 20th century, like, adventure novels along the lines of, like, The Lost okay. World or, like, you know, Journey to the Center right. of the Earth. Right, like, it's about exploring sort of, like, the world and, yeah. Right, it's more about the world of exploration. And so they explore the world of Flatland and describe it and stuff more so than having, like, an actual right. plot right. of, like, right. you know, right. whatever. Although, so, I mean, um, maybe we should... I don't know whether I should bring this up now, but the one thing you were talking about that strangely kind of, I mean, obviously the the monsters in this are drawn from that and I want to talk about them. Um, but the, the hierarchical and class issues I think are very much relevant to the Riggsy and Fenton yeah. plot, you know, and the fact that um, this is kind of a story set on, um, you know, this, this, you know, poor council estate where, you know, um, people can go missing and, you know, apparently the police are more concerned about graffiti than they are about missing persons in this neighborhood, you know, that that's sort of higher on the priority Mm -hmm. list. Um, And not even, you know, that damaging graffiti, just like a mural of people, you know, or, or a teenage kid who's like artistic and everything. Like those are apparently more higher on the priority list than, actual you know disappearances so you know and you get all of fenton's uh kind of awful you know classism and you know just general meanness Mm -hmm. um you know kind of looking down on the scumbag you know uh people who are doing community service so i think some of those uh class issues are you know um relevant in both stories um yeah yeah no that's interesting so i don't know i don't did you have any like production notes um i know i kind of went off no not really um i mentioned i mentioned last time that uh that this is the second episode from jamie matheson so the same as um oh right yep uh the mummy on the orient express um which this was also, you know, I think generally well received. Um, I actually prefer this one, um, but that's me, um, you know, and that's largely to do with, uh, I, I mean, I want to, so I don't know if we should just start talking about the situation and the monsters and everything, because some of it, I mean, I'll just go in my little, you know, rant here in the beginning. I don't know how long we'll be able to talk about the situation because I think largely it's kind of hard to do on a audio podcast like this because for me, the pleasure of this episode is largely visual. You know, like I, mm. I don't know that I, this might be one of the episodes I just enjoy watching the most. And it's, I mean, I think the story's good and I think there's some really interesting character stuff, um, especially with Clara. Um, but 
that aside, I think this episode is very unique in terms of its visual presentation and like just the use of humor is fantastic and it's almost all visual you know it's 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 you know the way that the doctor's large face looks through the little doors and you know it's I mean there's so many I think genuinely laugh out loud moments like I don't know that I laugh at anything in Doctor Who as much as the Adams family reference. Um, like that pretty much cracks me up every single time I see it. Um, you know, and there's a bunch of like, but even just like the way that the effects are done, like it's like stop animated. Like it looks like the monsters are claymation almost. Like it, the way that the colors sure. like flatten when the furniture gets flattened yep. on the walls and the way that the monsters sort of are like stop animated the way they sort of come up out of the floor. And it just is really strange. Like normally it's the stuff that would either be done by like, you know, an actual physical prop or like computer generated. And this just looks totally different. Um, you know, and, and some of it is just really simple, like having a little toy sized TARDIS that you can carry around. Like, it, it costs them sure. nothing and it's hugely effective, I think. So, um, yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, there definitely is a lot of visual stuff going on. And like, even I was thinking even, um, not even like the humorous stuff per se, but like the moment where, um, what I, I forget the guy's name, mm -hmm. number 22, I think it is that, uh, you know, you realize he's no right. longer there and you just get that like yeah. slight shift of perspective he's and you see that. He's painted onto um, everything, yeah. Yeah, he's painted, like, and painted not just on the wall, but like on like the edge of something. Mm -hmm. So like, what is what was it, like the right. trash bin or something where like, you know, when you turn, you just see like that, what, that slight angle difference of perspective, you know, makes it um, see. But then also like even with the resolution of... um you know, Risby painting the door that's like so yeah. realistic looking that it fools the, the, well, I, I kept calling them the Flatlanders, the, <laughs> right. the boneless, I guess is what the doctor calls them. I think um, they're both valid. You yeah. know, that it fools them into thinking that they can, you know, sort of the opposite. Cause like they had been turning like handles into like mm -hmm. two dimensional pictures or whatever. Right. So well, like, and, and, and um, yeah. And that being the, the, kind of flip side of that another kind of weird unsettling moment where you know he goes to reach for the door handle and it's flattened and but it's it's done so realistically that it looks you know so there are those moments of yep. visual kind of trickery you know of you're not quite sure what you're looking at um which i think really yeah. works well to make the episode scary but also funny like and it, they're able to sort of switch between the two um really carefully I think um yeah yeah and I think that's maybe largely because yeah. the effects aren't the kind of effects they normally do so you're not quite sure how it's being done you know or you know it, it's this sort of it's those little simple practical tricks are often more effective than like a lot of computer generated effects um so well, and I think I think from the 
you know, you mentioned the stop motion, but it also made me think too of like just thinking of like early cartoons mm-hmm. when, you know, you have like, like it, it, you know, it wasn't as smooth animation right. as it is now. So like you might have like characters walking down a hall and their legs are only in like three or four right, positions, right. you know, as they're going down the hall. So like you're not getting like the full, uh, you know, range of the motion. You know, you're not getting like. 24 right. frames, you know, to sweep the leg from front to back, you're getting right, like four right. frames. Right, you know, right. So there's that. like that and jerkiness so, of like the f- kind of flip book yeah. animation. Yeah. So it, it did sort yeah, exactly. So it did sort of remind me of that too. And I think, you know, when you think about it in that way, then it, you know, sort of goes to what the doctor says about, you know, how they're like, even with the sound and stuff, it's like they're, you know, the creatures the boneless uh are you know they have such a different uh understanding of what sound is because you know well what is sound it's compressed air moving in a you know 3d direction out from everything Mm -hmm. well that can't happen in a 2d world so how do they hear and talk and whatever or communicate in whatever way it has to be something so completely different we can't understand it and that's the same way as the visual yeah. stuff. So like when it looks like that way to us, I think that actually works better than something that would be more like a CGI. Well, I mean, maybe it is still CGI, mm-hmm. but you know what I mean? Like a more standard looking CGI right. alien or something would, you know, they would attempt to make it more 3d. Well, in this case, it kind of works that way where it they're trying to, form themselves as they sort of see us but it's not how we actually mm-hmm. see each other because it's a different perspective it's you know like to them it's more like just all these 2d things sort of shoved together right, in a certain right. way so i think i think that just in that way it does work well even though like you might think that the uh graphics and stuff aren't well done it's kind of like well that's they the point. Be right, right. Well done. Like, like that's that's a good yeah. reason not to do it that way because their perspective. Yeah, be yeah, and I think it makes them genuinely sort of alien feeling. You know, like I'm happy to have mm-hmm. big rubber monsters in Doctor Who, but this to me feels more genuinely alien. You know, and and actually right. something otherworldly and unsettling. Like they don't, they're not actually of this world, and they don't necessarily. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so bizarre that that feels right, you know, that they genuinely don't understand, you know, so you believe the doctor when he says, like, maybe they just don't understand things. Maybe they don't understand that we need these dimensions and they could just be trying to reach out and communicate and are accidentally, you know, it kind of doesn't seem that way in the end. Um, we don't really get any motivation, but it seems as though they're malevolent, that they're ignoring, you know all of these peace offerings and are kind of deliberately killing people anyway. Um, Even though that's a little bit ambiguous, but at least that feels like a genuine possibility that it could just be all, you know, their sort of bumbling attempt to make contact. Um, Mm. So the other thing too, that struck me, which I don't necessarily want to jump right into Clara, but, um, is the way that like 
all every all the visual effects in this feel very um like like children's toys and I, th this first occurred to me because i couldn't get over the fact of how they could do a pretty good looking cgi train flying through space in the mummy and the orient express and the train in this just looks like a toy train rumbling on a track and it's supposed to be a real train mm. it's not even like an alien train it's like an actual train in a right. subway and yet it looks like this little rickety toy that's like it just looked really strange and i'm trying to figure out like okay what's the difference why wouldn't they just do another good cgi train and i don't know that kind of occurred to me as everything feels like a toy in this like clara picks up the tardis like it's you know this little toy thing mm -hmm. that she's or she's like a giant playing with this thing um and then like the claymation kind of feel to the monsters and you know everything just you know and it's all about like painting things and artwork and like it feels like mm. this is the kind of in the same way that maybe kids can take a plunger and play daleks if i feel like this episode is easily easy to play like all you need is like some clay and some paints and a tardis and you can like reenact this episode mm. so you know I don't know how far to take that, but I like that aspect of it. Um, and I feel like that kind of unites all of the like weird little visual ticks throughout the episode. Sure, sure. And I mean, even when it's not like maybe a toy per se, it there are like almost like juvenile gags. Mm -hmm. Like I'm thinking even of like pulling pulling the you know, huge yeah. sledgehammer yeah. out of her purse yeah. kind of thing. Like, you know, that's definitely something that, like you were saying before, like there's a lot of funny, you know, aspects yes, to this it. Like silly that's visual the kind of humor thing. And, you know, and, and the right. doctors that like of, kids would yeah. get a kick out of and, and that you would see yeah. in a cartoon right. or something, you know, like, well, and, and pulling out it of, kind of yeah. recalls Clara's role as this magical nanny, you know, like Mary Poppins has a bag, which is bigger on the inside that like, you know, she opens up her bag and pulls out like, you know, potted plants and, you know, umbrellas and like everything, you know, so Clara now has this bag, which is bigger on me, you know, that so she can pull sledgehammers out of it. And, um, right. It kind of, yeah, it's a good visual joke, but it puts her back in that role as like, um, you know, character out of, you know, a children's book. Um, you yeah. know, and yeah, and, and it, some of it is silly in a kind of juvenile way of, you know, the doctor's little hand gesture to point in the direction and Clara's like, oh, don't do that. Right. <laughs> like, you know, it just like, like what? looks really the, wrong. The other one, and it, the, the, his hand coming out of the TARDIS yeah, like, yeah. or something, you know, like, uh, you know, like you were saying, but um, that actually also made me think of like, what was that? Um, it's like really bad like teen horror movie where like the hands were like oh what was that i can't remember anyway that that type of thing where like it's just like this like weird creepy like hand crawling along the floor idea that's just sort of like oh, the basis know. of like b, b oh, movie you know b horror I, movie i can't like, think of it i know what you mean i know what you mean yeah anyway anyway not that it's that big of an idea you know uh, of a deal but 
just that those are like like there is the element of like the train bearing mm-hmm. down and you know are you going to be saved or whatever but also it just has that right. visual of like you know you do you know the idea of like a hand sort of creeping along on its own is kind of weird and strange and creepy but also funny because it's like sticking out of the TARDIS yeah, and, yeah. The doctor and you know all those sorts of things so like kind of on both levels you know where it's creepy funny yeah no it manages to be like because the train is coming so fast you actually there's a good amount of tension there but i think the tension only makes it that much funnier that like he actually would use you know the adams family as like inspiration to move the tardis like thing um is just inspired and his little dance of celebration which then knocks it back onto the track so that he so it ends up yeah. sort of getting hit anyway um oh uh idle, idle hands, hands that's that it movie yes that that i was trying to think it's like a late 90s yes. like actually seth green was in it and uh jessica alba devin sawa <laughs> i remember that movie there you go <laughs> um so uh anyway that that was bugging me so i'm glad we looked that up but anyway so yeah um all of that like i I agree like the visuals are cool and whatever and like that's all um you know part of the situation there i guess the other aspect of it of course is that like we have people disappearing and um Bless you. Sorry, felt that one coming a mile away. Um, what people are disappearing. I might. Uh, sorry, I gotta grab okay. some tissues real quick. I'll be right back. All right. It's okay. Sorry about that. We'll have to remember. Yeah, to I'll. This out. I'm um, sure I'll hear it. The. Uh, yeah. Okay. So yeah. So with the situation we have, um, you know, like the people disappearing and stuff, um, and sort of appearing on the walls, and it's, you know, uh, it's interesting because you get, I guess, the. I, I'm not sure I understand fully sort of the timeline but i guess at first you get like people disappearing and they just sort of like are wholesale like look like paintings Mm -hmm. on the wall kind of thing and then you get um apparently as like time goes on is when you start getting like the doctor sort of talks about it as like almost like dissecting Mm -hmm. the people like because you get like the skin like it's under a microscope and you get like Mm -hmm. the nervous system so it's like which is interesting because it's like, well, okay, 
not sure what a two-dimensional microscope would look like. But, right. You know, again, this is like, you know, the boneless version right, of right. science, I guess. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that's where we get to. But, but it's funny because, so that turns into, not funny, but like that turns into sort of what you were saying about sort of the social mm-hmm. commentary sort of within this episode of you get kind of like that at least it's believed to be a version of like this is how people are sort of remembering the people mm-hmm. who have disappeared not realizing that these are actually like the people who disappeared right. in some way and you know whatever existence or non-existence they have in this 2d world um and of course like you get like you know you get like the memorial and i guess so is i didn't fully understand like is this like all people who have like disappeared in that tunnel kind of thing are on the walls or are they just people who have disappeared sort of around and i'm like they sort of i'm end not up sure there, i mean or yeah, so they're the people who are disappeared because the boneless killed them. So I'm not sure. Right. I mean, my under my my the guess would reason, be that sorry. My guess would be that they sort of start out maybe in the tunnel and then move up into the apartments, like so that there's like a progression of we we start by just sort of absorbing the people into the walls and then we're moving you know, further out to explore and find people. And we start like dissecting their parts and everything Um, because there is a progression throughout. They get more powerful as it goes on and, you know, progressing from just killing people to dissecting them. And then to like, you know, the 3d and then they can, you know, absorb power, all these things like each thing, Every, you know, move they make, they can do more than they were able to do the last time. So that would be my guess is that like, you know, that they, these are like the literal bodies of the people that they've killed that are plastered on the wall that probably they were walking past and they just got caught. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was thinking, but I wasn't entirely clear because when we first like when Clara talks about it, it's like, well, these are just people who have sort of disappeared. And I didn't right. immediately, but like, yeah, like everywhere else it's like, oh, it's like right there right, in right. that apartment. So like the, yeah, the guy, you know, at the beginning mm-hmm. and the cop, you know, later in the episode and that kind of thing. Yeah. That's um, what makes the most sense to me, I think. Um. So, um, so you get like the memorials and stuff and that's like, I don't know that that's necessarily like whatever, but it, it sort of reminded me of like, you see like memorials maybe along mm-hmm. the highway or something yeah. of, like where a car accident happened and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And I like the kind of, it's a but subtle also, setup of, of you don't necessarily see it coming until later. Like there is the memorial the memorial that people put up of like the flowers and everything. But then there's also this mural, you know, of the people who've disappeared, but there's this kind of sense that you don't realize till later, like nobody really knew who painted it or who put it there, you know, which is why they're going to paint over it because they're thinking, well, it wasn't a council approved mural. It's just graffiti, you know, but nobody painted it because it's the monsters who are making it. So 
you know, and I like the kind of, they keep calling back to this idea of they're in the walls, like, you know, wherever you are, they're in the walls. So, you know, that being the kind of locked room mystery joke. Um, mm. So they keep kind of coming back. So I think there's some subtle setup that like on the first uh, watch, it, you know, you're kind of just going along and, you know, trying to follow the story but when you watch it again a couple times you kind of see like oh that like it's actually pretty well structured like the actual the or when you find out information and how it's presented and everything Mm. um okay so let's move on from the situation and stuff to the doctor and clara because i feel like (laughs) We still have a lot yeah. to talk about with them. <laughs> and, and you know, we may come back to other stuff, especially with, like, Rizby mm-hmm. and Penton. But um, this, I mean, really, from an episode perspective, we get yeah. mostly Clara and sort of, like, the Doctor kind of yeah. behind the scenes a bit. Um, yeah, no, this is very, I do want to spend a, a chunk of time on Clara. Um, yeah, because we've been talking about Clara becoming more doctorish as it's gone on, you know? And so here we get Clara playing the role of the doctor, um, very intentionally and doing, and what her interpretation of that is like, what is it that makes one doctorish and how do I do that? Um, so yeah. What were your, where would you like to start with that? So I mean, let's talk about Clara. Cause, so in the beginning, like we, we're, you know, we're getting sort of, a, you know, additional reminders about the fact that Clara has decided to continue on with the doctor, but isn't really telling Danny mm-hmm. about it. Um, so, you know, first of all, it's the, uh, oh, you know, you can leave stuff here in the TARDIS if that makes things easier kind of thing um and she's like no no that's okay yeah. like Danny doesn't like me leaving stuff in the TARDIS and then she you know kind of goes pedals. on in her way which doesn't wouldn't make sense if you know he is okay with me going in the TARDIS in the first place yeah. and blah 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 and the doctor right. says he's not <laughs> listening now we he, right, he may right. or may not be listening like just because he says he's not doesn't mean he isn't. But, like, that, you know, that's kind of funny. But, you know, again, like, we know, like, okay, this is, she obviously hasn't told him yeah. yet. Um, and also then the insistence of, you know, bringing me back to the exact point where I was at the exact mm-hmm. same time as I left. And, you know, just the idea there, the implication anyway, there of being, you know, that she, you know, if that happens, then again, like Danny won't find out. So it's, you know, sort of, this is an interesting episode from that perspective, coupled with the into Mm -hmm. the woods episode of Buffy, because you're getting these, you know, Oh, uh, lover, you know, who, is doing things maybe the other wouldn't approve of or wouldn't understand or wouldn't, you know, or just simply that you're lying 
to them about what you're doing and not really being forthcoming when you know that you're doing something they wouldn't like yeah. or approve of or, you know, feel good about, whatever. Yeah, and, um, and also that um, idea of the deal breaker, you know, the ultimatum of, you know, Riley saying, you know, we're we're finished if you don't give me prove to me that you care enough you know give me a reason to stay or else i'll leave um and we don't get any confrontation between danny and clara but he kind of gave her that earlier of you know i i have to be able to help you and you know if you lie to me then that's the line in the sand you know and and we're done so you know we kind of got her lying kind of I mean in, intentionally but somewhat impulsively I think at the end of the last episode you know like with every intention of this is the last uh hurrah and then in the end you know um t- totally just sort of in the moment saying right. you know what no and and but not you know but telling intentionally telling Danny that they had she had done it um Whereas in here, I think this is, we're past the point where you could just call it impulsiveness, you know, like this is, this is now the problem with lying is the cover up of the initial lie, you know, like, like, you know, because you can't ever just leave it at that. Now it becomes about the increasingly convoluted web of lies, which must be constructed to preserve the first original lie. Um, Yeah. So you get her, you know, like, you know, we don't, I don't think we see enough of Danny to see how much he might buy her, you know, like she kind of cuts off the phone conversation, but like, you know, it's kind of ridiculous her on the phone, like saying everything's fine while she's like swinging through windows and like, you know. um, Yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I think it's pretty clear that he suspects mm -hmm. something. And, and even kind of the way that he you? sort of says, "Are you in trouble?" Yeah, yeah. Where are you? And and yeah, like he, him asking, like, right, "Are you right. okay? Like, are you in trouble?" Like, I think I would be surprised yeah. if he was completely clueless. Was, yeah, you know, even even because like even before when she is sort of trying to hide things from him, he's like, "Do you think mm-hmm. I'm an idiot?" Like, you know, this isn't this isn't Mickey. <laughs> like, you know, this isn't right. like. You can tell him something and he'll believe it, even though there's maybe something not making sense about it. Like, I don't know. Like, this might totally be me projecting on him, but I get the sense that, like, Danny's saying, like, are you in trouble? Like, like I get the sense right. that he kind are of Are you in trouble is like, code for, that, like, are you on an alien planet running from monsters right now? You know? Right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And um, and I get a little bit of bemusement in that question. Like it's he's he doesn't say it in yeah. an angry way. He almost says it with a kind of rolling his eyes. Like, where are you? Right. And are you in trouble? You know, like in a kind right. of like right. Do you need in me a to kind help of like or humoring are you okay? right. her yeah. kind of way? You know, um, right? Yeah, almost like like. A, I mean, I I hesitate to say it this way because, like, it's not 
their relationship at all, obviously, but like almost like a parent would with a child when the parent clearly knows right. they're lying. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, right, right. well, you know, where where did the dog right. hide? You know, the broken right. remote. It's like you you have like, to <laughs> smile as you're saying it. It's that kind of like I'm yeah. kind of playing along, but like I'm fully aware of you know the fact that I'm playing along, um, and I'm kind of um, amused by it. So. so I- I kind of got that sense. I mean, it sounds like you at least acknowledge it could be read that way, whether that's true or not. Maybe we don't ever really get full Mm -hmm. confirmation or anything. But um, I kind of got that sense that, like, he he knew something was going on and, like, probably thought it may have something to do with the doctor, that maybe it wasn't Mm -hmm. quite as done as Clara led him to believe before. Um, You know, we'll see if or when there's implications about that. But I think more interestingly is just that, like we've mentioned before, even like how, you know, with Clara's sort of lying or covering up or whatever, there is a sense of her becoming more and more Mm -hmm. like the doctor. And that in that sense, it's, there's the question of, you know, like how she, she has said like, Oh, you know, why am I, why do you have me along? Well, it's because mm-hmm. I'm your conscience. But I think in this episode, we get another sort of step away from her, like an, another step more towards being the doctor and away from being that sort of self-described mm-hmm. conscience of the doctor. Now, that's not to say that she or the doctor don't have a conscience. It's to say that whatever conscience the doctor might have, Clara is taking more of that than the doctor is taking mm. of her, you know, whatever conscience right. that was. And, and so I think that's just um, interesting. And so a part of that becomes mm-hmm. the lying. Um, so a couple things yeah. about the lying. First of all, we get a different rule right. one from right. Clara yeah. uh, about the yeah. doctor, which, you know, the rule one that, we've always been told by river is that the doctor lies, Um, which is interesting coming, you know, from Mm -hmm. river's point of view, that that's rule one from Clara. We get a different rule one though. And it's not. So part of why I find it interesting is because like, you know, again, that's like rule one from like an Mm -hmm. external standpoint, but Clara's rule one is slightly different because of the way she positions it. It's, rule number one of Mm. being the doctor it's not like it's not the doctor's rule one but it's like this is you know for people who want to be the doctor this is what you you know remember first it's use your enemy's power against them and okay you know maybe there's just a lot of sorry yeah Um, you know like like there's that aspect that maybe it's just like whatever the most in the moment rule yeah, right now that's is rule that's rule number one um but you know certainly that's something the doctor does like there's no denying right. that that's a thing the doctor frequently does and and so you know again is it is it like because it's a different shift in perspective is this because like clara's like attempting to emulate the doctor and so this is like from the doctor's mm-hmm. perspective this is the most important role or is it that you know, again, maybe it it is just that there are lots of different most important rules, or maybe um, it does have to do with that fact of like rivers coming from the perspective of someone who's not the doctor, mm. and so whatever, or being 
of Time Lord mm-hmm. stock herself, or, you know, whatever you want to call her. Um, you know, the, the, the fact that her rule number one is the doctor always lies. Maybe that says more about her than it sure. does the doctor. You know, so there's, there's lots of interpretations of that. But one, I thought that was interesting that we get a different rule mm-hmm. number one from Clara. Um, the other thing that I kind of found funny is when the, you know, when Clara is first sort of declares herself to Risby as, you know, I'm the doctor, Dr. Oswald. And Risby asks, what are you a doctor of? Um, and you get the doctor going in the of background. Lies. Of lies. Yeah. You know, and it's like. Mm, how right you okay, are. <laughs> but yeah, like that, if you're trying right. to be the doctor, isn't right. that the doctor you right. would want to try to be? Because that's what the doctor right. does. Right, right. Yeah, and you get a sense so, of there's double meanings there of he just means it in a purely, you know, making fun she's because she's right taking now. on his identity. But there is that more there's a deeper truth underneath that of like what is the doctor the doctor of lying as much as anything right. else um and yeah. with the well no sorry. do you want to finish your the the other thing just that that reminds me of though is last week when we're on the train and the doctor you know says I'm the doctor and you get the conductor saying well what what kind mm-hmm. of doctor are you and he's like, oh, nobody's sort of ever asked me that. And he, you know, says, I forget exactly what, you know, he says he's a doctor of. And the conductor says maybe, you know, uh, what's her oh, name? I can't remember. You know, maybe Macy. maybe yeah. she was yeah, right, right she called in, him a liar, in, say, in yeah. calling you a liar. So, so you know, there's there's a sense there that sort of the conductor was calling him also right. a doctor of lies. And you know, again, you're getting sort of the resonance there between that incident and I think this incident, even though like this is a much funnier sort of moment, um, you know, and and sort of more throw Mm -hmm. throw away. But I think the fact that you have Clara going around sort of acting like the doctor, there is a parallel you can draw there um, between the two. Right. Well, and the point about the rule one, you know, I think it's interesting that like that line, I don't know that we've had that line about, you know, rule one, the doctor lies that to me, that's a very, I think it continues to be true, but that's a very 11th doctor slash pond era line. I don't think we've had that line said that I can think of with Clara and the 12th doctor you know that so clara might not just be aware of that as like as a thing that river you know because river said that to amy so like they kind of that's a little saying that they knew of you know whereas i don't know that clara has that context but you know it still applies because you know like you said maybe there's just a lot of rule number ones but you know in the end, that's what she does, is use their power against them. But her first instinct is the lying thing. You know, like, the first instinct isn't, how are we going to use the monster's power against them? You know, that's not... The first thing she thinks is, lie to them, give them hope. You know, isn't that what you would do? And I love his his line of, well, it's true that people with hope tend to run faster than people without. So, like, 
The lies are like the useful motivator to get people like whether or not it's true, you know, I have to tell you something positive in order to keep you motivated because if you despair, then I can't help you. Um, so is there, there's that kind of but, practical, but like that you becomes know. a self, it, it becomes a self-fulfilling yeah. prophecy because if you tell them that and it does spur them, hopefully, then everything right. does work out. Right. Fine. So like, right. Then you were, okay, then you maybe were not right always for everyone, but, right. but like, you know, if it, if it works out the way the doctor wants it to work out, right. then it was true. So it's one of those of like, is it true because it's mm-hmm. sort of objectively true or is it true because, you know, yeah, right. again, it's effective. It. Yeah. You, you sort of, it, it, it's like sort of like, you know, is, is the prophecy, you know, is Harry Potter the, the one to kill Voldemort because like he's the prophecy and you know the prophesized whatever or does like he become the prophesized one because everyone expects him right to be well and Voldemort you know? makes him the the prophesized too so and there's Voldemort's, the kind of Macbethian right, right. well like everyone right, including the Macbethian yeah, paradox like, there yeah um yeah exactly. so yeah so I think that's interesting that that is whether or not she knows that that's rule one she seems to intuitively know it if not she doesn't outright state that that's rule one, but that does seem to be one of her first instincts is lie to them, give them hope. Um, and, you know, your point about her maybe moving away, not that she's lacking in conscience herself, but maybe moving away from that role as the doctor's conscience, you know, he's kind of put off by her kind of, it, it also, so if being the doctor is partly about lying and giving people hope that may be false, but maybe just act as like a motivator to get them going. Um, the other part of it is this, is that kind of, you know, like what they talked about in the last episode, that, that cold detached way of thinking in order to, you know, maybe with good mean, like good intentions, you know, to keep people alive, but Mm. that doesn't mean that it's not still cold and detached. Right. So and he's kind of sure. disturbed by that, I think. You know, so there's, you know, when he says, like, the thing about it's true that people with hope tend to run faster, whereas people who think they're dead, she says, Donald, end up dead. He goes, so that's what I sound like. Like, kind of like, ooh, that's a little harsh coming out of her, you know? Like, and and yeah. called back at the end by her kind of thing of, you know, yes, people died, but on balance, we did pretty well. So she's already sort of weighing the overall positive, uh, you know, outcome against this specific people yeah. who, whereas like the, the companions seem to be the ones who do mourn the individual, you know, like it's not enough to just save the day, but you have to, you know, it, you still lose individual lives who were important, you know, and that tends to be how the companions think, you know, but in her kind of doctor headspace, Clara's become about the big picture, you know, of, you know, on balance, we did, we did well. And, and that means I was a successful doctor. Um, you know, which obviously, you know, I think it, the doctor makes it clear at the end how, bothered he is by this you know so you know calling back the the question at the beginning of the season about 
you know, am I a good man or not? You know, her kind of insisting that he say that she was a good doctor. And he says, you know, you're an exceptional doctor. Goodness had nothing to do with it. So this split between our, you know, what makes a good doctor and maybe what makes a good man or a good person are not necessarily the same thing. Or like, maybe there's a difference between good in the sense of effective and successful and good in the sense of like moral, um, you know, and you can be an effective doctor who saves lives, but is that the same thing as being a good person? Not necessarily. Yeah. And it, so, and what's in, so basically we're, we're talking about, um, sort of a, a difference in ethics from a sort of a deontological perspective, which is, uh, you know, basically saying like a, an action is good regardless of like how many people, mm -hmm. you know, it affects like, you know, either because it, you know, God says it's good or maybe, you know, if you don't believe in God, maybe more of like a natural rights, everyone's sort of born mm -hmm. with the same, you know, civil rights or whatever versus sort of a more, uh, consequentialist like mm -hmm. a utilitarian sort of aspect of like okay well maybe it's good you know in this respect so long as like it doesn't hurt mm -hmm. too many people and you know whatever then you know maybe it's less good if like you know it doesn't you know if like there are a lot of people who are sort of hurt mm -hmm. by it and you know whatever so like it's not the action itself, but sort of the mm -hmm. results of the action that are, you know, more into play there. And it feels like, it feels like the doctor is a little more in that gray area of the more mm. utilitarian, you know, aspect of it, of like, you know, we do the thing that can save most people if we can, um, but, you know, we can't always. And so we just sort of have to learn how to deal with that. Whereas like Clara, at least from, you know, initially is more coming from that maybe sort of like everyone mm -hmm. has a, has a right to, you know, be a certain way. And so a lot, I, and I haven't like gone back and like looked at it from these perspectives. So these might be more simplifications mm -hmm. of whatever, but, but she does seem to have more of that, like, you know, no, it doesn't matter who you are. Like everyone has sort of the same, rights and you know we should treat everyone equally mm -hmm. kind of thing but then it becomes a little grayer when you're the one who's sort right. of responsible for making right. that happen yeah um, well and that seems to so. be the doctor's critique of her is exactly that utilitarian position which is interesting like because you know it doesn't quite tell you how to read it is that him you know maybe seeing himself for the first time in the sense of recognizing how how his attitude is and being bothered by it like oh that's how i sound i maybe i didn't realize that you know and that's what is troublesome or is it that he's fully aware that that's how he thinks it's just that he doesn't want clara thinking that way you know like you know he says something about you know i think that way so that other people don't have to um, so maybe mm. it's more her taking on that role that he is bothered by. And I'm not quite sure. He seems to acknowledge that there's 
an ethical failure in that in the kind of utilitarian way of thinking but i'm not sure how far to take it you know whether he sort of sees that and and accepts it or whether he's maybe acknowledging you know that there's a real flaw i'm not quite sure um yeah yeah i mean and yeah there's is i think there's definitely a, just a perspective thing going on there of it's easy to be the one to say you know this is mm -hmm. the right way to do things when you're the one doing it but you know when you're looking at it from a different perspective that may not be the case so right. um right and and i think the last three episodes are interesting in that way you get a kind of progression of Clara being put in the doctor position and kind of coming to terms with that. So in Kill the Moon, being very disturbed by having to make that decision and very, you know, angry and to the point that she's ready to swear off the doctor and the traveling, you know, because of it, you know, and then, you know, in the next one, okay, you know, she doesn't like that she lies. Um, but by the end, she kind of sees how it was necessary. Um, and she kind of consoles herself with the fact that the doctor's really pretending to be heartless. He's not, it's not that he doesn't care. It's just, well, he pretends to not care to get people to do what they need to do. Um, and then in this, you hardly get any sense that she's uncomfortable at all. She totally embraces, you know, playing the doctor and kind of cheerfully says at the end, well, on balance, we did really well, you know, like, like with barely mm. any, you know, thought for the people that died along the way. So you kind of have this, right. like, right. you know, which you can kind of see how, you know, much as her reaction in Kill the Moon wasn't fun, you can kind of see how the doctor would be sort of uh, alarmed by how quickly she's sort of come around um, to, you know, strangely yeah. enough, I think for him having her agree with his point of view is like weirder than if they were actually arguing about this, you know, cause I think you're more used to having, you know, Rose or Donna or Amy yell at the doctor when he's being, you know, utilitarian and say, you know, it's their job to sort of tell him when to stop and tell him, you know, how to behave and when he's gone too far. And I think Clara has historically done that too, up until recently. And now you're starting to get her sort of right. move away from that and start to adopt more his way of thinking, which I think is a little weird for him. And yeah, so up until recently, but also it's been yes, somewhat gradual. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, so there's that aspect. And also I think just to sort of round out and, and bring the two aspects of it together, there's, you know, a difference between her lying to sort of save lives and then her lying yeah. to Danny so that she can right. go off and have right. adventures. So there also seems to be sort of, and the doctor may have this same thing as well, but there also there may be some sort of like confusion mm -hmm. happening too there between like 
when is it appropriate to lie and okay to lie versus when is it not? If you know, if it's okay to lie, then what are those situations in which that is okay, and how do I know when I'm overstepping right. that? Um, and you could, you know, you could get to the point of like, even like, you know, in the Angel episode last week, where you have like the Jeeves character asking Angel, like, isn't the world better, you know? Uh, with you in it than it is, you know, with this Darla woman who can't really make up her mind mm-hmm. about what's going on. You could almost see Clara saying like, oh, well, it's better for the doctor to have a companion and more people will survive if that's the case. And sort of, you know, making those excuses. But she hasn't even like gone so far as mm-hmm. to do that and like, you know, lie to herself right. in that way. She's just lying and we don't really know her impetus there so you know not all of the doctor's lies have been strictly necessary either you know and so so there's that question of like okay even even if there are times when it's okay to lie and maybe even good to lie if it saves more lives than not lying would have done then what are the sort of responsibilities that one has to make sure you only lie in those cases and don't lie. Right. Well, a couple things there. So, you know, there's that, she pretty much quickly starts, there's that one moment of the doctor says lying is a vital survival skill and she sort of looks guilty, but then she's saying, well, does it count as lying if you're doing it for someone's own good? So like, you know, there's already this sort of fudging of, well, I only tell Danny these lies because he wouldn't understand and it would, you know, wreck the relationship and, you know, we'll all be happier if I, you know, like, so you're already sort of justifying, you know, things to yourself. And then something I had barely even picked up on on previous viewings is, you know, the very sort of casual way at the end, um, you know, when uh, when Danny calls at the end um, and she doesn't, you know, the phone's ringing and the doctor says, you know, pick it up and talk to soldier boy. Um, you know, so she puts it on silent. So she'd rather talk about this with the doctor than answer his phone call. But, you know, and she kind of very, uh, you know, quickly says it's not him and then gets back to her conversation. So there's like this very, by the end, it's like, she lies so easily. You don't even realize she's doing it. You know, maybe she doesn't even realize Mm. she's doing it. You know, there's this kind of like, Oh, it's not him. It's somebody else. Um, you know, so they're just sort of, it's that thing of the more you do it, the more easily it sort of comes. Um, and I also did want to mention, you know, your, what you said about it's been gradual, you know, I think that is very much in the kind of DNA of Clara's character that, you know, one of the first things we saw of her was, You know, I mean, there's a lot made of Clara, the kind of control freak, you know, of, but part of that is having, you know, arranging things just so, you know, and trying to sort of control all aspects of your life. And that being a good way to do that is to lie to people, you know, to get them to kind of do what you want them to do, you know, so you kind of had one of the first things we saw was Clara, the you know, governess slash, you know, barmaid in Victorian era who, you Mm. know, has her different lives and her different roles. And, 
carefully keeps them separate and never the two shall meet. And, you know, and that's sure. the kind of, you know, the bit of her that's the control freak is able to sort of, now that was a sort of idealized echo version of her life um, where everything sort of worked out. But here, obviously, maybe she's not controlling it as well as she maybe thinks she is. Um, but I do think that that's kind of been latent in her character for a while. Um, so the lying <clears throat> isn't necessarily something she wanted to do, but once she starts, it comes kind of naturally to her, I think. Yes. Um, so, all right, we're pretty well yeah. over time here. Um, the last thing I guess to talk about with Clara uh, is we get the ending. So we get um, yeah Missy mm -hmm. again, which we didn't we didn't see her last time. No. I think we noted, um, but we we get here and now this is different than when we've seen her before because before we've seen her sort of in context of people dying and going to some mm -hmm. version of heaven uh, or what is being called heaven anyway. And so now we get Missy, just a couple lines here saying, Clara, my Clara, mm -hmm. I have chosen well. So the question there, there are a lot of questions there, you know, what relationship does Missy mm -hmm. and Clara have, or will they have, you know, to each other? But also, like, what right. does that mean <laughs> that she chose? Like, what is Clara chosen for? Yeah. Um, is this impending then of, you know, Clara maybe will be going uh, to this heaven place, which has implications for her life right, elsewhere. Right. Um, you know, and then, you know, also, like, yeah, like, what what is this? What is this choice that is being made? And who is Missy to make it and why does it affect right. Clara and what other options even were there? So like, I don't know, just all yeah. sorts of questions that it brings up about who this is. Well, and, um, the, and the, what, and obviously, I mean, what, what, what criteria, sorry, you know, she's kind of watching this scene on an iPad, it seems. Right. So in right. what, so, what is it about Clara in this scene that makes her a good choice for whatever it is, you know? Well, and, and, you know, who knows how long right. she's been watching. Is it, like, this whole I mean, right. episode, the events right. of this episode? Like, has she been sort of watching, you know, Clara's whole aspect mm -hmm. of being the Doctor? And is there something, you know, about that? About the lying and the other stuff that goes along with it, you know, um, that maybe is prompting that mm -hmm. declaration as well. So, who who knows? I don't know. Um It'll be interesting to see, but yeah, yeah. All right. the The plot thickens, and I know we only have a few more episodes. We left do, in this so season, we too, won't so. be coming uh, up on the climax in too much longer. So, um, yeah. In fact, I think one more uh, standalone to go, and then we get the two part finale. So we're almost there. There we go. So all right. All right, see you then.